founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Awesome. Elon, thank you for being here today, my friend. I'm excited for our conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, we're going to start where we always start, which is getting a little bit of an idea of how you even got here. So what led you to start this company? What, what, what was going on at that time? Yeah. So it might be a kind of a trite answer, but actually what really changed my life in this trajectory is I watched a documentary. Uh, it's called Cowspiracy. And what that documentary outlines, if no one's seen it, uh, it's on Netflix. What it outlines is the impacts of industrial animal agriculture on the environment. Um, and this film was pretty ahead of its time. Like now everyone knows like beef is bad uh, for the planet, but back then not very well known. And what I learned from that documentary, that the points that really stuck out to me was that one, industrial animal agriculture was responsible for more climate change than all of transportation combined. This is according to the UN. And then two, 90% uh, of the deforestation of the Amazon rainforest actually comes from industrial animal agriculture, like growing food to feed cows or grazing cows on land. Wow. And it was those two points that to me, as someone who considered himself an environmentalist, someone who cared about the planet, to me, that just didn't feel right. So I decided really that day that I watched that and learned those, uh, those facts that I was gonna change the way that, that I lived in the world in terms of how I ate. Right. And so I, I cut out products from industrial animal agriculture for my diet. Um, and at the same time, I started thinking that this is not enough. You know, this is such a big systematic problem that has to be changed. How do we actually change that? How do we move people away from eating these sorts of products that are destroying our planet? And around that time, a friend actually sent me a, an article about this really new product of the world called the Impossible Burger. And that product hadn't even launched yet. And what it was for me was this incredible aha moment. Because at the time, I was running a software business that I co-founded. So my professional passion was entrepreneurship and innovation. And then what I saw in this Impossible Burger was actually my personal passion of changing the food system to be a more sustainable, healthy, and ethical one. And the, this opportunity in alternative proteins was really the wedding of that personal passion with the professional passion. And so that's when I decided to actually step away from this business, the software business, and go into the alternative protein space. Because the whole goal of that space was to get people to replace their industrial animal agriculture products with their plant-based or cell-based or fermentation-based products. So I joined this nonprofit called the Good Food Institute, which is the leading nonprofit in the alternative protein space. Um, and from there, basically, I went to start uh, Eclipse. Wow. So I imagine there was fear on a few different levels. So one is just leaving something that you know and something that is successful for something that you don't know uh, and you're not sure you're going to be successful. And then two, uh, the enormity of the problem that you're seeking to solve. Tell me about that. Was it? I mean, I mean, I'm assuming that there might have been some fear there. And is this really the right move? Should I make this leap? Or was it relatively easy for, to make that transition for you? 
I think uh, it was it was easier than you'd expect um, for probably a few reasons. One is that as a typical founder, I'm pretty optimistic. So I was sure that I was going to be able to do something meaningful in the space. Um, and kind of the, the latter was just that personal passion. Like for the first time in my life, I'd really struck on something that, that I said, whoa, like this is to me the most important thing to work on. And I think actually, you know, objectively, it's an absolutely incredibly important thing to, to work on because it impacts not just sustainability, but also human health in a huge way, um, animal suffering in a huge way, global poverty in a huge way. So anyways, it's like this really all encompassing problem to solve. And I just had so much passion for solving that problem that to me, it actually, it was almost imperative. Like I was like, I, I can't work on, on consumer software right now. Like I have to work on something that, that is, it's really a, a ticking time bomb in terms of climate change and all these other problems. So yeah. it, I had a big, big push. How do you think about the idea of following your passion? There's a lot of debate, you know, online uh, where certain thinkers are saying, man, just follow your passion, right? And then others are saying, well, that can be a trap for many people that they might not enjoy making their passion their business. And um, so I'm curious for you, whether it's just your own personal perspective or what you would tell others, how do you think about the idea of following your passion? Yeah, it, it's a good question because, right, there is the kind of the old saying of, uh, if you turn your hobby into work, then you're not going to like your hobby anymore. However it goes, that wasn't yep, the eloquent yep. version of it. Um, I don't know that I, that I have like a strong opinion or enough data to say that that's true or untrue. Um, in my case, specifically, my passion was, it was really a, a mission and it was a mission to impact change. And I don't think that that was a hobby for me, right? Like, it's not like, you know, my, my hobby is snowboarding. So, uh, I'm going to try to be a professional snowboarder. It's like, no, I believe super strongly and, and very passionately about changing the world to be better and to be better for the planet and for ecosystems and, and for animals and for people. Wow. And I really want to drive that forward. So in that regard, um, I feel extremely, extremely lucky to be able to work on the thing that I care most about every single day and to know that every ounce of effort, and it's a lot that goes into pushing this thing forward is also pushing the mission forward that I, that I believe most in. So in that regard, like if you can align your work with your, your mission, then I think there's, there, there can be very little downside. It's extremely motivating, but I don't know about like, you know, my hobbies. Man, that is a great way of articulating it. If, especially in my head, if I can interchange hobby with preference and you could interchange like mission with purpose, right? So I did exactly what you're talking about when I was in college. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I was bored with what I was studying at university and I had no clue what I wanted to do, but I was like, well, I love wakeboarding. I do that like five days a week. And so I got an idea. I'm going to start a wakeboarding company and we teach people how to wakeboard. And we did, and it was successful. And I got so bored. I was like, man, this is not fun. I, I, I don't ever get to wakeboard anymore. I'm on a boat all day teaching other people to do this. 
and I don't want to do this anymore, you know? And that was an example of a hobby. It was like, yeah, I tried to turn a hobby into a business, and I lost my joy for the hobby. But that's different than purpose, that you're personally passionate about a mission or a purpose, and that the work you're doing is directly aligned to the impact you're trying to make. I, I do see that as different. So that's a great delineation between what kind of passion are we talking about, right? Do I just like yoga, and so therefore I think I should open a yoga studio? Or do I have something that I think my skills aligns with a mission I care about, and that would be a great business to start? Yeah. And it's difficult, right? Because not everyone kind of pinpoints that thing that they have the fire in their belly for. Yeah. So I think it's it's a natural kind of path to, to say, well, there's this thing I really enjoy. So like, let's do that. But maybe we're getting deep here, Drew, but maybe there is this opportunity to like take a step back and ask, you know, what is, what is the, the mission that I'm trying to achieve versus like, what is the thing that I enjoy doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think we all could benefit from slowing down and asking deeper questions every now and then. Who am I? Who do I want to be? What are my values? What would I consider worth my time and energy in the world? Um, and I, oftentimes I do think if it's not specific to some big cause like yours, sometimes we could even just ask, how could I be more passionate about what I'm currently doing? Like often it's infusing meaning into what we're doing, you know, and saying like, all right, and if I can't infuse meaning in this that I'm passionate about, maybe I'm in the wrong space. Maybe I'm in the wrong job if there's no way for me to feel more passionate about what I'm doing. Um, so anyways, that's a, that's a great conversation. I do want to continue with your story. So you joined this nonprofit. When, how long into that did the idea of starting your own company and your own product come, come about? Yeah, I, I actually, I always knew that I wanted to start a company in the alternative protein space. Um, cause I was coming from having started a company and I understood that that was the kind of value that I could most add into the industry was bringing that experience and actually creating that and using it as a force for, uh, basically achieving that mission in the fastest way possible. And to, to not speak vaguely, like what does achieving that mission mean? It, it really means like getting mainstream consumers to eat more products that replace their industrial animal agriculture based products so like with eclipse right plant-based products the more that we can get people to say every single day yeah you know what like i'm gonna go for the plant-based version not the animal-based version every single time someone eats and makes that decision that is a positive step towards reducing climate change reducing animal suffering reducing the human health crisis etc so in that regard i always thought like okay the fastest way that I could help make that transition happen is by creating a company myself. Um, but going to the Good Food Institute, I actually joined there to start their innovation department, which meant running an incubator for the plant-based, cell-based, and fermentation-based space. So we were actually supporting other entrepreneurs to figure out their go-to-market strategy, their positioning, their funding strategy, et cetera. And so it was this perfect opportunity to one, make an impact right away towards that mission by being part of this really amazing organization. Um, and then two, it gave me this incredible 10,000 foot view of what was happening in the market. Where were the holes? Like, where was this market going? And that's really what led me to choose Eclipse as kind of the idea and the, what we're working on at Eclipse. Um, and also 
enabled me to meet my co-founder who is like one of the world's best product developers. So I would say there was, it was sort of a strategic step, but it was also a way to, to put a lot of impact right away, even when I wasn't necessarily an expert in the space at the time. Yeah. So pulling on your experience with Eclipse Food, with the company you started before that, and then even just getting to be an advisor for so many people that have started their companies, what do you see as kind of a common issue to getting these businesses off the ground, to getting a business off the ground and some ways that you've seen yourself or others go about solving that in those early one to two years, first, first year or two? Yeah. Uh, so we went through Y Combinator, which is, as I'm sure most know, uh, the world's leading tech accelerator. And they have their kind of one line, right? It's make something people want. And I think that in the end is the biggest, the biggest challenge of starting a business. Because in the end, you are in a world where so many people have already thought about solving so many problems. And creating something that actually does that better, that problem solving better for people than anything else that's out there, that to me is the hardest part. So really hitting on that product market fit, creating something that people want at the right time in the right place, that's the hardest part. Because if you can solve that, you can get the funding, you can get the team, you can, you can make it all happen. Um, but it's really like, hitting on that spot for, for people or for, for corporations or whoever you're selling to, that it's something that they truly, truly want. Yeah. Let's dive a little deeper into that. If you're someone right now listening, who's starting something, imagine they don't know that they're listening right now. And they're like, I think people want this, but I don't know. How do you go about finding out if what you're thinking about creating or in the process of creating is something that the market wants? So a lot of it comes from really like taking risks, right? And putting things in front of people and, and seeing how they react, right? And a lot of times it does take an investment where you don't necessarily know what the outcome is going to be. And that's why like early stage venture is, is risky, right? Because there's no crystal ball saying like, yeah, this is definitely going to work or not. I think there are ways to, to mitigate those risks, right? One, if you're coming from this world yourself where you felt this pain point and you know for a fact that there is a, a sizable group of people who feel whatever pain point you're solving and you know that your product solves that pain point, then you've de-risked it a lot. And that's a really good way to do that. I mean, another way is you just talk to people as much as possible and you ask the hard questions, not the questions that you want to hear the answer to, right? So like, let's say you're, I don't know, you're making software that helps trucking companies move, move more efficiently. And you go and you distill your, your one line, like this is what we're going to do. And you go and you tell the trucking companies and they say, yeah, we don't really need that. Um, so it's like, yeah, maybe you are Steve Jobs and you're creating something that people don't even realize they need. But most likely, like if you're hitting on a pain point, people will react to you discussing that pain point. And you'll just feel that energy start to come out. Essentially, like it's all about people, right? In the end, people make decisions and people are going to be the ones that decide whether your product is purchased or not, or invested in or not, or whether people join to, to uh, join your company. 
And so making sure that you really get a ton of feedback from people and from the market and data from the market um, and everything like that, I would say. Yeah. It's a hard question to answer. It is. It is. And we could have a whole long conversation just about this. Like, how do you qualify people's feedbacks? Like, which ones do you listen to? Which ones, you know, maybe are giving you a false flag. But I would say that it's worth spending the time if you're listening to this because there's nothing more discouraging, at least in my experience, than creating something and finding out nobody wants it. And then the opposite is true. There's nothing more encouraging than finding out that what you're thinking about creating is something that resonates deeply with at least a certain segment of a market. It's so like, oh, you want this? Okay, you know, Seth Godin says it well in marketing that a lot of marketing is just basically saying, hey, we see you, we listen to you, and we made this for you. And that alone, that framework of saying like, how do you find a subset of people that you're like, I see you, I've listened to you, what you need, and I went and made this for you. Do you like it? And, and I think sometimes as creators, we're like, I think I know what they want, and I'm excited by the idea, and I'm going to go make it. And then when there's crickets, it's just so discouraging, right? Uh, so I like, I like the way that you're thinking about approaching that. Now, my follow-up question would be, once you feel like you have a product market fit, and let's use Eclipse for this. You mentioned that there's a lot of people out there, and many of the problems that are trying to be solved today, there's already a lot of people trying to solve them, right? So how do you stand out? Like, let's say you figure out this is a need. I believe in what we're doing. I even think it's better than other people. But how do you stand out in that market where people actually get to know you and choose you? It comes down to the nuance of what you're building and who your customer is and what they care about. Because in the end, you can make a product that's similar to, to other products, but it's differentiated in one way that really matters to your consumer and then your your product is suddenly a winner and let's take a, a really good example from the food industry justin's peanut butter right like justin's peanut butter is it's peanut butter right it's the, there's no there's no magic unicorn right. powder in there it's it's peanut butter and the the insight was hey like people want a snack on the go people want a high protein snack that's healthy and tasty and let's put peanut butter in a pouch. And sometimes it's like the simplicity of just knowing what problem you're solving and doing it different that allows you to stand out. So at Eclipse, like we looked at plant-based dairy today and we really, we really looked at the, the data and, and it's pretty clear that the reason, the number one reason actually, that people avoid plant-based dairy today is taste. It's, it's just, that's it. Like less than 3% of the, uh, the dairy market is plant-based. And the reason is that people just want the taste and texture of dairy. Yeah. And so we said, okay, well, this is some, some very clear insight. Let's just make products that have the taste and texture of dairy of the thing that people love and that's that's exactly what we're doing and it's working really well like we're the number one fastest selling plant-based ice cream brand in whole foods norcal and you know it's because the product is is really meeting the consumer where they are which is wanting this product that that actually requires no sacrifice i love that i love that 
Um, so for part two of our conversation, we've been asking each founder, what's the thing you're most currently passionate about sharing with our audience that could either accelerate their business or accelerate their personal life? What is kind of that topic or that thing that you'd like to dive into? Yeah, I think it, you know, we've sort of been skirting around it and this, it's this idea of like, how do you drive behavior change? Um, in order to achieve something that's really important and change the world, although that that's kind of a trite thing to say, right? Um, but it's true because behavior change is basically being able to drive behavior change in people is one of the most powerful tools for driving positive change in the world, right? And so at Eclipse, our mission is to create these products that are made from plants that are good for people and good for the animals and good for the planet and so much better than the alternative which is the animal-based products and we just make them extremely delicious and and require have them require no sacrifice for the consumer and that's our theory of change is that by making a product that requires no sacrifice we can then make the sustainable healthy and ethical choice the default choice and so going back to kind of the, the whole thought is like, at large, like, how do you get people to switch over to these things? Or how do you drive behavior change to make a positive impact in the world? And that's kind of the thing that, that I'm most passionate about. That's the reason we started this business. Um, and I have some thoughts around like, what, is, what are the ways to do that? Yeah, well, that's what I'd love to dive into. You mentioned one already. So let me see if I'm hearing you correctly. And I think I think you're spot on, which is why do people know something is better for them, but not choose it, right? Like we know we should eat healthier, but we don't, or we know we want, we'd rather eat a product like yours, but we don't, or we, we know we want to go to the gym, but we don't. Why do we not do that when we know it's better? And one of the things it sounds like you're mentioning is the friction, the friction that's involved oftentimes, or the sacrifice that we think is going to be involved in making the change. And so we choose the short term over the long term. I don't know. That sounds like scary or that sounds different. And so we choose the path we know versus the path we don't know. And you all giving them a very similar experience and taste and texture is potentially removing that sacrifice, at least a feel in their head, a friction or a sacrifice and allows the change to happen. Is, am I hearing that part correctly? That that's kind of part of your theory around change? Yeah. I think one of my core life theories is if you want someone to do something, you have to make it as easy as possible for them to do it, right? And you see this with uh, modern UI and UX, right? It's all built around and UI, UX, user interface, user uh, design, right? Um, like it, it's all built around what, what is the most intuitive, easiest thing for the user to do on their phone or on the website, et cetera, oh, yeah. to get them to take the step that we want them to take, right? Yeah. So I, I, for my software days, like that was always super, super clear. Like we just have to make it a really easy to follow path um, to bring the consumer along the journey. Yeah. And so like taking that learning over to food, I think you just, for us, we just looked at what consumers care most about. And the three biggest drivers of purchasing decision in food is number one is taste. Number two is price. 
number three is availability. So can you actually find it on the shelf, right? Um, and then number four is nutrition, health, and everything else. So to your point, a lot of people choose things today that, that might meet taste, price, convenience, but no, don't necessarily meet the nutrition or the health or all of those other factors. And it actually makes total sense because that's yeah. not the top decision-making priority for the majority of consumers. And so what we've seen, and, and this is kind of that theory of changes, we have to make it as easy as possible for people to make that decision. And the way we do that is we just simply lower the barriers for all the things that, that they care most about. So taste, we have to make a product that tastes incredible. And like with our, with our ice cream, for example, we've put it in front of uh, three Michelin star chefs, like multiple, and they've tasted the product and they've said, uh, like Michael Tusk of Quince three Michelin star restaurant. He tasted the product. He said, look, like this is, a, this is an incredible product. Like, I don't think I would have known that this is made from plants if you wouldn't have told me, right? This is like some of the best palettes in the world. Yeah. So yeah. you have to win on taste. Price, like our whole, our whole business, our whole technology is built around scaling so that we can actually compete with dairy at scale and still keep a healthy, positive gross margin. I think that's why our investors, folks like Seth Goldman, who's the chairman of Beyond Meat and Forerunner Ventures and Initialize and White Capital and uh, oops, Initialize Capital and White Combinator, all these amazing people. I think that's a part of what really attracts them about the business. And then availability, like that's just that's just our job, like getting the product on all the shelves. But really, yeah. like I'll say that the end result of this is we are building a world in which a person can walk into any grocery store and go to their dairy aisle and pick up like their milk or their cheese or their yogurt or their ice cream. And they can pick up the dairy version they can pick up the Eclipse version and they can look down and they can have this moment where they say, you know, these products are the same, taste the same, price the same, nutritionally the same, but one happens to be better for me and better for the planet and better for animals, better for future generations and makes me feel better about myself because I'm eating in line with the way that I want to see myself in the world. That is so smart. That is so well done. I mean, again, if you're listening, what a helpful exercise it would be just to ask, like, where is there friction? Where, where is it difficult right now for someone to engage my product? I mean, I even think about Amazon. Buy now. One click, right? Like, why did they put that on there? They were trying to say, well, they might get confused or they, there's too many steps. They got to put in the cart then they got to put their payment in then they got to do whatever. Well, what if they could just hit right here by one click buy, you know, and I'm sure that has translated to a huge boost in sales, right? Um, I was even thinking there's a client I work with actually it's interesting that you mentioned that they work with truckers, they work with shipping. They are, they're a factoring company. So they have a software, right? that is superior to everything they're using, that gives visibility of where their, their packages are going and saves time and money and all that kind of stuff. But they're hitting a huge resistance from a lot of these companies actually purchasing and onboarding it. And I said, let's look through the emails. Show me the rejections. And then out of those rejections, look for the, the, look for the friction. And we made a list, and there was just like four things that were common friction points. And I said, if you can solve for those four friction points, you'll have no problem getting the sale. And so that was their goal. They went and solved for all four friction points and then they led with it. So the next time they were sending the email or whatever, they'd say, hey, just so you know, 
this is what we've heard. We hear you're scared about this. We hear that whatever, and you lead with it, and you say, and we've solved all four of those, and they're getting sales like crazy because they just removed those difficulties or friction for buying their product. And you guys did the same thing with your price, right, with the taste. Like you identified, here's where people might have a barrier to giving this a chance. And you've solved for them, and now it opens it up where people are just walking into your product. And it's probably the same with the gym, right, with personal choices. You know, one of the guests I had on, a, on my personal podcast was James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits. And he talks about, like, instead of just creating a new habit, attach something new to something old, right? So he's like, if you're already brushing your teeth, could you, while you're brushing your teeth, be listening to an Audible book if that was something that you wanted to do? Like, take something you're already doing and just stack something new on it, and it removes the friction of having to cr find new time and create this whole new thing. Or he talks about, like, laying out your shoes and your outfit right by the bed the night before. So in the morning, you don't have to think about what to wear. You don't have to wake up and walk across the room. You just put your running shoes on and your clothes on, and you're out the door. Um, so anyways, I think just as we're having a deeper, or a bigger conversation around why people don't change and what ways we could help people change th your idea or your your articulation of removing that difficulty and that friction i think is pretty profound and has got me excited even to look at my life and say where do i just need to play that simple game where's the friction where's the friction how do i solve for the friction does that make sense totally so that's the go ahead oh no as does doing uh something positive while you're brushing your teeth Actually, every morning I, when I brush my teeth, I do a gratitude practice where I basically do, pick five things and I just, in my head, say, you know, I'm grateful for this person for doing this. And that actually helps frame everything in my life more positively. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we've been doing the same thing with my, with my kids' bedtimes. So I have three kids. And my two daughters share a room upstairs, my son, and just the way the, the way it's worked, my son always wants my wife to put him to sleep, and my girls always want me to put them to sleep. And so I already have a bedtime routine. Like, we're already there brushing teeth. We're already there, like, reading stories. And I was just thinking, like, man, how could I make – how could I double up that time? And I've also used that as the time to check in with them about their day because usually when they get home from school, they don't want to talk about it. You know, when we're around the dinner table, they still don't want to talk about it. But something about them being in bed and, like – everything's kind of calmed down, they open up and they let me know like, did, wow. someone hurt their, did someone hurt their feelings today or are they excited or scared about something? And I'm like, man, I've been trying to have that conversation in other spaces and there was friction. But when I get you in bed and the lights are off and, and we're cuddling, we just read a story, like you open your heart to me and that's when I can, can be there. So it's just, it's fun to find those like repurposed spaces where there's mm. less friction. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, that's really sweet. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's been a new thing that I've just recognized right in front of me. Like, man, they're just different. In this moment, they're they're more open to me than they are when there's chaos and they want to play outside with their friends. And I'm trying to like, tell me about your day. And they're like, no, <laughs> they move on. Um, so anyways, man, if you could, if you could impart a skill to us, all right, I'm not telling you you have to impart it, but meaning like what skill would you value at this stage of your life? If you could impart a skill to us, what do you think would be worth us just as humans, as founders, as people trying to improve and grow our, our business? What skill would be worth spending some time to get better at, do you think? 
I think storytelling. Ah. It's, it's kind of simple in conceptually, but it's actually, it's one of the most powerful things that one can, can do effectively, right? Actually, there's, a, there's an incredible book, Pulitzer Prize winning book called Overstory. Um, not sure if you read it. It's about, it's about people, but it's also about trees. And uh, there's a line in the book where one of the characters asks another character, like, you know, how, how, do, we, how do we make a real massive change that needs to be made? I won't spoil the book, but how do we make this real massive change? And, and the response from the other character is like, what can truly drive change is a good story which is like super meta because the book is also a good story. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but I really think, I really think that's true because across every single thing that, that you do as a founder or as, as a CEO or even as just a person in the world, telling a story is being able to convey in a way that resonates uh, with your audience. And it's being able to really like, convey what you're trying to say in a way that people understand. And so whether you're fundraising and you're telling the story of like, what is the company and, and why is it going to be successful? And why is, it, why is it worth your money to hiring people and really telling the story of this is what our company is and this is what we stand for. And this is why you should be a part of it to telling the story to your consumer or your customer and say, this is why you should care. And this is why this is important. And in the end, and I think maybe this is a theme, um, the, the most effective story is able to drive change and able to drive people to action. And until AI takes over for all of us, if uh, you know, if that's some people believe that, but until humans are making the shots or until humans are not making the shots, changing, behavior and, and driving decisions is, is the most impactful tool for change. Wow. Couldn't agree more. Well said. Okay. We're going to end now with our lightning round questions. So five questions I've got for you. No pressure to come up with the perfect answer. This is literally just the first question or the first answer that comes to mind. Uh, so starting with question number one, if you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, we think about this kind of like the billboard that they would walk by every day and see, and that message slowly sinks in deeper and deeper. What would you say that message would be? This is not for the world. This is for your people working for, with you. Yeah. I would say, I mean, we have a set of values. So I, without going into like all of our values, I would say follow, follow the values. But I think the, the biggest one is moral compass points north. Like do the right thing, do the right thing towards our mission, but also do the right thing outside of our mission. Because in the end, like we're, we're all in this world for a short time and we got to work really hard towards making this place better. And so let's keep our moral compass pointed, pointed north. Let's treat each other right. And um, we'll do absolutely great things together if we can, if we can keep that. I love that. All right, number two, what is the single best advice and also the worst advice you've gotten about growing your business? I mean, the, the best advice is the Y Combinator, like make something people want. 
So sorry to recycle content here. Very good. Um, the worst advice. I mean, this is from another book that that I really love. That uh, one of the kind of older, wiser characters says to kind of the young protagonist that most people in this world are vines, and you're a tree, and the vines are trying to like choke you and basically like stunt your growth, but you as a tree have to, have to like really push through and ignore a lot of um, a lot of the, the vines, as it were. And so I don't think there's like a single piece of really bad advice, but I think, I mean, so, so, so often people just come to you with disbelief and they say that I don't, I don't think this business thing is going to work. And I don't think that you're worth investing in. And I don't think that um, your company is worth joining. And there's just, there's so much rejection and, and all of that. And in the end, like people, you don't really remember that, right? Like you remember the success and you remember the, the tree, not the vines. So I guess that's, Beautiful. yeah. What's that, what's that book? Uh, the power of one, hmm. which the title sounds actually really different than the actual book. The book is about a young kid in South Africa during world war two that like gets into boxing. Um, it's a really sweet story. Uh, yeah, you give me two books. I got I got to go look look at. So I'm excited about that. Overstory. Yeah, they're and great. The power of one. The power of one. I would listen to as an audiobook if you can, because yeah. uh, the narration is incredible. It's it's all the different accents in South Africa at the time. Cool, cool. Okay, number three. What currently stresses you out or or causes you the most worry as the leader of your organization? I mean, right now it's really hard to hire. I think everyone knows that. And um, we have really ambitious plans and we have the capital to make it happen, um, but we need the right people in place and we need those people fast. So like really being able to hire fast enough, to grow fast enough, to make the kind of impact that we need to make in the time that we need to make it. Because as we've said, you know, climate change is not waiting for us. So really being able to, to scale uh, fast enough to to impact that mission meaningfully yeah. well uh, that's question number four which you've already articulated but feel free to do it again what is the big kind of audacious goal and, and desire for this company in the future yeah i mean the the articulation of you know going to the grocery store having that moment where the products are the same um and i think the kind of the addition to that is once we have people having those moments all the time where they really look down and they say, hey, there's Eclipse, there's the dairy version. These products are the same. What we've done is we've made the, that default choice, the sustainable, ethical, and healthy choice. And once we've done that, then we can, we can and we will like take incredible amounts of market share away from dairy. It's like a $500 billion market plus globally. So build an incredibly huge business and, and also make a real dent on the biggest problems the world is facing. So good. All right. Number five, this is our kind of fun, creative question, but if you got to hop onto a DeLorean, you got to go back to the past and you're not there to change anything, but you are there to, to deliver a message. When would you go back in your past and what message would you deliver to that younger version of yourself? It's like a re really good question. I think um, one thing that I 
somewhat regret is in college, I, uh, I had some interest in, in uh, life sciences as well as business. And I actually, I took chem and did really well. And I took a bunch of other science classes, but I ended up um, not pursuing a technical major in addition to uh, my business major. And I was at Berkeley. And so there's basically no better institution to, to gain uh, a scientific education. And so I kind of, I kind of wish I would, uh, um, just for, just for the, you know, the joy of, of knowledge, like yeah. biology, physics, there's, it's such fascinating fields and they really are sort of the mechanisms that, that rule our world. So I, I would, I would say not, not in that, like, I wouldn't want to change my trajectory in any way. Like I love where I'm at and, and I really am, feel super grateful to get to work on my mission every day. Um, but yeah, that would be kind of my selfish, like go, go learn more stuff. So good. Well, my friend, thank you so much for being here today. This conversation was incredible for me and I, I believe so for our audience and just, I'm, I'm thankful that there are people like you and that there are companies like yours out in the world. So thank you for doing that. Absolutely. It's great to meet you. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.